Here we go, rejecting the screen, the Going ISO edition, as we do every week. An interview with anybody and everybody who has touched the NBA in a certain way. This one, a bit different. Not a former coach, not a former player, not someone who covered the league day to day. It's Jeff Perlman, the New York Times bestselling author and host of one of my favorite podcasts, Two Writers Slinging Yang, his latest book, Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the Crazy Years of the Lakers Dynasty is available for order wherever you get your books. It'll be out in hardcover September 2020. Also, while you're at it, might as well pick up Showtime and read that Lakers book even before you start reading Three Ring Circus. Jeff, I want to start by reading something from your author's note in the beginning, because I think it's so significant to constantly come back to this as people hear you on podcasts and hear the promotion from the book. You wrote the book, of course, before Kobe passed away. And in your author's note, you write, this is my clumsy way of saying that the Kobe Bryant of 1996, 2004 is not the Kobe Bryant of 2005 to January 26, 2020. He was not then the contemplative adult who raved of having four daughters. He was not then the doting husband. He was not then the Academy Award winner. He was not yet comfortable in his skin. What I hope to supply here for good or bad are not merely the highs and lows of a dynastic basketball team, but the early steps and missteps of a player who arrived in professional sports as a child and tragically died days ago as a fully formed human. Just as you cannot explain Albert Einstein's brilliance without first examining his days as a youthful burned patent clerk, and just as you cannot know Amelia Earhart without grasping her time as a homeschool child in Des Moines, it is hard, if not impossible, to love the richness of Kobe Bryant's life without observing his days of stubbornness and social experimentation and development. As excerpts of the book end up getting released, one, how are those determined, Jeff? And what type of reaction do you expect from those who simply just see excerpts about Kobe Bryant? Well, I sort of learned from uh, about 10 years ago when I had a Walker Payton book come out that you need to be a little careful what excerpts you allow to be excerpted. You know, um, Mm -hmm. usually when you write a book, you have a couple of excerpts that you give to major places and it helps promote the book. And with the Walter Payton book, the excerpt that SI ran on its cover, which was, you know, really exciting for me, but it was about sort of the end of Walter Payton's life and depression and infidelity and the immediate backlash was harsh. You know, it was really harsh. So I, um, I definitely don't want excerpts this time to be about whatever Kobe Bryant and Eagle, Colorado. It just, it just, without the context of the book, it doesn't work mm-hmm. and, it, and it's not, wouldn't really be fair to him and his, his family. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm nervous about it. I'm definitely nervous about it. I've never written a book where one of the major protagonists dies right before the book is coming out or right after I finish the book. I don't know what to expect. I don't know how it's going to go over. I feel like I'll repeat the line a million times that this book was Kobe Bryant as a young sort of up and coming guy, not as a fully formed adult. And hopefully people understand that it's it's just a look at one part of his life. Before Adam asks a question here, I just want to say that I have read the book. We're recording this third week of August, release whenever it is appropriate to release this podcast ahead of the book release. I have read the book. Adam is not. So that is the the context for this conversation. Go ahead, Adam. When you found out about Kobe's death and where you were, as you said, in the, in the writing process, can you take me through what, those, what was going on with you and, and, and the book during those few days when you found out the news? 
Yeah, I was literally sitting in a corner bakery in Irvine, California, and a friend of mine, another writer named Amy Bass, texted me um, and basically said, you know, I don't know if you heard, it's not, reports are of Kobe Bryant dead. And I I actually, I'm pretty sure I said out loud, either what or no, you know, like what? And um, then you, you're the guy talking to himself in the corner bakery in Irvine, California. <laughs> it's a weird thing that goes, it's, I'm no, I'm no victim whatsoever. I'm not, I'm not a person who grew up a diehard Kobe fan. I'm certainly not a family member. Uh, I'm not a former teammate. It's weird to spend all that time researching a subject and have an unexpected death like that. It's really weird. And I remember, I'm not, I would never name the name, but one person said to me, I think the next day, so this is good for your book, right? And I was livid. I was just livid. And I was, I was like, I don't care if it's good for my book. Like I'd rather sell zero books and have this not have happened. Like I don't, what does that even mean? Um, and basically maybe a week after he died or I don't know, we, uh, I just didn't feel comfortable having it stand alone, like not being addressed. So the book was completely done. It was going through edits. And I said, I think I should write sort of an author's note at the beginning. Um, and it's the only reference to it in the book. Except I think in the acknowledgments, I mentioned the, the victims of the, of the crash. But it was the only reference to it in the book. And it was basically saying, laying out, look, you're, what you're about to read is not the most, it's not an ode to Kobe. You know, there's a lot of stuff in this book about Kobe Bryant that's not so glowing. And it is important to remember, especially because he just died, that it's only one part of his life. And this is not the entirety. It's not the entire picture. Um, and I, I, I imagine some of that motivation is self-preservation, having gone through the Walter Payton thing. But I also think a lot of it is just because a lot of people really struggle to deal with the death. And also, you have to remember, this is before the pandemic hit, mm-hmm. you know, and it felt like this was the biggest bombshell we were going to have in 2020. And this was going to be this piece of information that we don't know how we can deal with. And that almost feels uh, quaint, considering what we've gone through since. But that's what it, that was the context. So I wrote it. When writing the book and talking to so many folks about Kobe, and I want to get into the process a little bit, but then hearing how revered he was in, in so many circles after he died, and then just the you know, the father that he, that, that he did end up becoming, and the person that he ended up becoming, was it hard for you to wrap your head around that the fact that this was the same person? No, because... Um, I was always kind of aware of it. Uh, well, I mean, there are a few things at play, right? Like someone dies and correctly, we, uh, we tend, we try to highlight the good sides and we try mm-hmm. to highlight the positives. I think that's fair. Um, I didn't like people bringing up the sort of eagle rape allegations in the immediate aftermath of his death. Like everyone's like, we need to talk about this. And I, I said, that's fine. But I don't think we need to talk about it four days after he died, you know, when his family is still coming to grips. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew about, I mean, I knew about sort of, even when I was working on this book, I knew about what Kobe had kind of become and that he was this really involved dad. And he was, I mean, he doesn't live that far away from me, his family. And, you know, that he was a regular churchgoer and that he was very into, into coaching and his family and sort of becoming an entrepreneur. So even writing the book, when I was doing it and you're deep into it and you're writing about Kobe Bryant, this kid at 20, who's just cocky and kind of insufferable, you're simultaneously aware that he's not 20 anymore. Um, and I kept thinking, this happens a lot with me. I kept thinking about myself at a young age as a young writer. And I was a cocky little punk. 
And I thought I knew everything and I didn't want to take advice from other writers. So I'm aware from my own experiences, not that's at the same level, but I'm aware of my own experiences. They, you know, they say youth is wasted on the young and the people we are at 20 is not who we are at 40 generally. And I knew that was true with him too. Why Jeff decided to write this book in the first place is coming up. This episode of Rejecting the Screen is brought to you by rockauto.com, a family business serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. You can go to rockauto.com and shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. They've got everything you need to fix up your car. Whether you're a classic or a daily driver, you can get everything you need in just a few clicks. And most significantly these days, it's delivered safely directly to your door. Its catalog is so easy to navigate. You can see all the parts available for your vehicle. You can choose the brands, the specifications, the prices. And those prices at rockauto.com are always reliably low. And they're the same for professionals and do-it-yourselfers like most of us are. So then why would you spend twice as much for the same parts? If you go to rockauto.com right now, you can see all the parts available for your car or truck. Important. Write locked on, L O C K E D space on, locked on in their How Did You Hear About Us box so that they know we sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. RockAuto.com. Jeff, why did you first decide to write this book? I, I don't have a great answer. I mean, I'd written a book about the, called Showtime, about the, the Korean magic, Pat Riley era. And I was living in New York when I worked on that one, and I was flying out here a lot. And that really gave me a love of the Laker organization. I mean, Jeannie Boss is probably my favorite owner. She's just a decent human being, good to deal with. And the organization was really good to deal with. I was looking around. I was coming off a book about the USFL that it wasn't an obvious sell, and it was a hard sell. And um, I just thought you look at Shaq, you look at Kobe, you look at Phil Jackson. Right there, you have three huge figures who um, who hadn't really been, I hadn't read a definitive or seen a definitive, definitive work about that era. And it just seemed like a really good topic and seemed like people, I love sports nostalgia and it feels like that is now, it's nostalgic to think of that time period and no longer feels particularly current. Um, and it just seemed like a pretty natural subject to delve into. What were your efforts like to try to talk to Kobe for this book? I mean, it was a pain. I got Shaq, I got Phil, I didn't get Kobe. Um, I wrote letters. I reached out to his people. Um, I was made clear very early that he wouldn't talk. And I was told very early on my odds of getting Kobe are pretty limited. Um, I think personally, the number one thing is there's this thing that hangs over that era. And it is Eagle, Colorado. And it's the rape allegations and how close he came to going to jail, to prison. And um, when someone's writing a biography, you have no control over that. You know, you, it's not your message. It's the messaging of a writer. It's his interpretation in a lot of ways. And I just think if you're, if you're Kobe and you've moved past that, I could understand why you don't want to address it and understand you're going to be asked that. So I kind of assume that's the number one reason. Uh, most of the media he did in the, in the years, and this is not a criticism at all, but it's been pretty friendly media, a lot of late night TV. He did the Mamba Mentality, his own book. Uh, so I think, you know, you try your best. You try to get someone to talk. When it becomes clear he's not going to talk, you sort of just move on. I know that having read Showtime myself and, and loved it, and not just saying that I because do. you're on the podcast, but one of the things that I really appreciate about your writing and your reporting is just how many people you go and interview. And then it shows in the details 
in 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 your writing style when you were researching kobe in particular and we can get to the others but when you're researching kobe who are some of the people that you talk to um that you know i know in the past it's been towel boys and it's been guys that clean the cleats and all that who are some of the people yeah. that you talk to to really get some great background information about kobe well i mean it was a lot of uh, a lot of high school a lot of lower marion people uh, tons of you know reporters covered him during that time period. I just, I think the formulative years of Kobe Bryant, Italy, and then uh, Lower Marion are sort of really important and blueprints to who he became and who he was. So I reached out to a ton of teammates, a lot of sort of camp guys. You know, I went to these camps, ABC D, uh, the Sonny mm-hmm. Vaccaro camp. Yep. And uh, I threw in the B. And uh, and you know, just trying to reach out to as many of those guys as possible. Um, I do a lot of equipment guys i do a lot of art like it's going to sound weird but two of the guys i interviewed for this book uh are two former basketball players eric chenoweth who played at kansas and was in camp with the lakers and paul shirley who played briefly in the nba uh yeah i would very nicely played iowa state Mm -hmm. to me guys like that are always really really important because they're the guys people like Kobe and Shaq don't have to be nice to. You know, like, you talk to Rick Fox, well, Kobe and Shaq are going to be nice to Rick Fox. You talk to some guy who's on the fringes of making it, they're going to tell you things, or they're going to have the real exposure. And, again, I, I, it feels weird. This is my first interview about this book, really, and it does feel weird speaking. It's uncomfortable speaking negatively about Kobe and sort of in this way, but he just wasn't that good to these guys. You know, he was kind of a jerk to them. He was kind of a bully to them. And he was one of those guys who saw what he could get away with with you. And the best thing, like I talked to Mike Penberth, the former Laker guard a lot. Mike came out of master's college. He was a nobody. And he learned really early on, like, you don't take Kobe Bryant's crap. You have to stand up to him. You have to show that you're not just going to be there and get, you know, beaten up. Um, and Kobe liked playing the alpha. And he liked showing. I, he's, a, he's a weird guy. Um, in that I think he really wanted to be, he saw what the NBA was at the time and who were the kings of the image of the NBA. And it was guys like Iverson and Stephon Marbury, where you're hardened and you got this edge to you. And Kobe didn't, he just didn't, he wasn't, he wasn't brought up that way. He wasn't a kid from Coney Island, like Marbury. He wasn't a kid from Newport News, like Iverson. He was brought up in Italy, and then he was brought up in the suburbs, and he took Brandy to his prom. So it was trying to find people who understood sort of the almost like the battles of being a suburban kid but struggling with that image. I thought that was a really interesting part of Kobe Bryant. So I tried to speak to a lot of people about that and what that is, if that makes sense. Yeah, the, the Eric Genowitz story, the, the dichotomy between how Shaq treats him showing up at a party at his house and turning with yeah. saying it's an honor to be here and Shaq saying, nah, man, what do you need? Cigar, this, that. And then, right. and then Kobe, when Chenoweth, when they're in Hawaii and there's an ice cream truck there and Kobe says, get my motherfucking ice cream. Don't, don't walk, run. Yeah. It, yeah. It, there, there's, there's so much, there's so much about it. Every, and, and I've tweeted this as well, that like every page, there's something that just like makes your jaw drop or, or slap your forehead. And you're like, how did these other guys exist in this locker room with Shaq and Kobe? What, w- what was the one thing that Shaq told you that made 
your jaw drop. All right. So jaw drop is a wrong word. I, I would say that, but there's something I always remember with Shaq. Like there's one story I've told it to my, my relatives that if someone comes over, but I haven't talked. I was with Shaq in Atlanta and he was really cool. I probably got whatever, an hour and 20 minutes with him. You know, he was in the Turner studios. It was in his little office. He was very, very nice. I couldn't have been more gracious, truly. And at the end of the interview, I said to him something like, uh, the one thing that seems different between you and Kobe is you always had nicknames. You gave yourself nicknames, you know, the big Aristotle, Superman, Shaq Diesel, whatever. But it always seemed like there was a wink and a, and a, and a laugh to it. And Kobe called himself Black Mamba, but he took it seriously. And I think this is actually the last thing I was actually leaving. And Shaq said, now you know what I was dealing with, brother. And like, I just thought that was really kind of telling and interesting. Like, Shaq was always in on the joke. I always saw that. He got the joke. Like, we are huge men getting paid millions of dollars to throw a ball in a hoop. You know, like, he got the joke. And he got the fleeting nature of it all. And I'm going to enjoy it the best I can. And I don't think Kobe Bryant was ever in on the joke. I really don't. I don't think he ever was in on the joke. Like he, Shaq called himself the big Aristotle and he thought it was funny. Kobe <laughs> called himself the black Mamba because he viewed himself as a black Mamba who's going to strike and kill you. Like that is different. Those are two different yeah. approaches. I, I just thought that was very interesting. It is. It's, it is. it's, it's it, Jeff, it's interesting that you, that you talk about the idea of Kobe sort of emulating the, the stars of the era that had this, this chip on their shoulder. And obviously Noah and I are both from the, Philly area. We both saw Kobe play in high school. We have connections and friends to him. Had have talked about it a lot in the past, knowing sort of what was going on with him during the Lower Marion days. And I, I'm curious because it, it's almost like the narrative has been told that Kobe put on this villain outfit sort of after everything happened with Colorado. And it's like, well, this is how they view me now. So now I'm going to take on that role. And he sort of has talked about that publicly, that he embraced it that way. So I just wanted to go back a moment. You said that it's almost like when he was coming up through the league, he already felt that way anyway, that there was this chip. Is that just something that the general public didn't see? I mean, all right. So I think um, he's, he, uh, it was all kind of, I don't I hate to sound all Freudian. I just don't think he really knew who he was. I really don't. Mm -hmm. Like, I think mm -hmm. it's just weird. If you think about it, it's really weird to be, he came into the league at 17 slash 18. It's really, really weird to show up in the NBA and think you're the best player in the NBA. Like, that's weird. Like, that's a weird thing. And that you're just as good as Jordan and you want to challenge Jordan. You should be starting right now. The Lakers have Eddie Jones, but, you know, and Eddie Jones was a really good player. But no, I should be, I don't know why I'm not starting. And I mean, there was one point, um, Dow Harris told me where, Kobe complained to him, I think his rookie year, about why wasn't he calling post-up plays for Kobe? And Dale Harris is like, because we have Shaquille O'Neal playing center for us, you idiot. What are you talking about? <laughs> I'm like, he just like, I don't think he knew who he was. And I don't, I don't really buy the, like, after Eagle Colorado, I decided to get hard. Like, he just, it was all like, it was a lot of try auditioning personas you know, like, and trying different things. And I'm going to be this way. And you would hear him talk like, I was thought, I think speech patterns are generally a pretty fascinating gateway into who someone is. And like, mm -hmm. Kobe was a yes, sir, no, sir. Um, complete 100% proper English kid. You know, like, 
he just was like a kid. He was like a, you know, it's like there's a line in one of my favorite movies is Creed. And Rocky says to Adonis Creed when he first meets him, he says, you talk good. I can tell you've been to college. And I'm like, Kobe Bryant wasn't like, he wasn't, he didn't have that edge to him that Iverson and Marbury did. Um, and he felt like he should, you know, mm-hmm. he just felt like mm-hmm. he should. So he kind of imitated it. So I don't think it was just Eagle. I don't think it was just after Eagle that he got edgy. And he got the tattoos and he tried doing this whole me against the world thing. I just think he was always auditioning personas at that age. I really do. Yeah, reading all these stories, it's just it's like cringeworthy. Just you feel so you feel so uncomfortable for him because it's through Jeff's writing, Adam, you can just tell how uncomfortable Kobe was with himself. Uh, Jeff, Adam brought up your the exhaustive interview process. Which doors did you physically knock on? Oh well, I only uh, the only one I physically knocked on, like unknown. You know, like I went to see people. I went to see Phil Jackson, spent a lot of time with him. I went to see Shaq, a lot of different guys. Um, but I did J.R. Ryder's door. I actually, uh, <laughs> it was really scary. J- so J.R. Ryder, I couldn't, I don't think I had his right number, but I had an address. And it was going to be in Arizona, and he lives in Arizona. And J.R. Ryder was only a Laker for a brief period of time and won a championship ring. And I had an address, and I was in Arizona. I knocked on his door and I had a copy of my USFL book and he, a kid answers the door and the kid's like, can I help you? The young kid. And I'm like, Hey, I'm here looking for J.R. Ryder. And the kid goes, hold on one second. Then a woman comes to the door. Can I help you? And I'm like, Hey, my name's Jeff Perlman. I'm a journalist. Wrote this book. I'm trying to find J.R. Ryder for a legal book I'm working on. She goes, hold on one second. Door closes. And I hear like, who's door opens. There's J.R. Ryder and definitely him. Little Pajir still looks pretty good, though. Little gray in the beard. And he's like, uh, who are you? Well, my name's Jeff Perlman. You know, I'm a writer, and I wrote this book. Wait, bro, bro, you just you just show up. You just, you, you just show up at my door. Are you, bro, are you joking? You just, and he opens the door. Bro, that's not, that's not, that's not, that's not cool. That, bro, that's not, that's not cool. And then he goes, so what book are you writing? And I go, yeah, I'm doing a book about the Shaq Kobe Lakers. He's like, what's a, what's a book you have with you? And I go, it's a book I wrote about the USFL. Oh, that was the Trump League, right? Trump League? And I'm like, yeah. He goes, all right, man, I'll talk to you. And uh, we ended up having to do it on the phone because it was like 9.30 in the morning. He was with his kids. But he, uh, he gave me like two hours on the phone and couldn't have been more awesome. <laughs> was it? Uh, oh, wow. there, there, there are so many great characters in the book. Was it, was it Ryder who was... Was he missed like a few days of practice because his car broke down, but he was living in a hotel next to the facility? He was about 200 yards away and he missed <laughs> practice. And then he had um, one time his alarm went off. I mean, he overslept and he had the clerk at the hotel write him a note to give to Phil Jackson why he was late. <laughs> That's awesome. Who, who, were, who were some of the other great characters that you didn't necessarily get the Shaq, Kobe, Phil stuff from, but that you really gleamed a lot from the the era as a whole from? Oh, man. I mean, J.R. Ryder's probably my favorite. My second favorite, because nobody remembers him there, is Dennis Rodman had about a 26-game career with the Lakers. He signed, and um, no, Jerry West did not want to sign Dennis Rodman, but the team wasn't very good this year, and um, Dale Harris had just been fired. Dale Harris was sent out. Dennis Rodman signs. 
Jerry West did not want him, but Jerry Buss really wanted him, like desperately wanted him. All the Lakers are amazed, first of all, he never takes a shower after games. He only showers before the game, which nobody's ever seen before. He um, he signs, and Kurt Rambis is, the, is named the interim coach of the Lakers. And Rambis is, uh, he didn't know Rodman, but he's like, first day, he's like, all right, I'm going to coach Dennis Rodman. We'll, we'll make this work. Hey, Dennis, how's it going? Kurt, good to meet you. Happy to have you here. And Rodman goes, yeah, so uh, I need a week to go to Vegas, and then I'll come back and play. Is that cool? And he literally leaves for a week to go to Vegas before he plays for the Lakers. Like, that was Kurt Rambis' introduction to his new forward. And it's funny because, like, Shaq kind of wanted Rambis there because of what he'd done with the ball. I mean, wanted uh, Rodman there. And Kobe wasn't opposed to it. But he was just a freaking nightmare. And nobody understood what he was doing. And he was he didn't communicate. He never said anything. He would show up smelling like alcohol. He would take naps on the court during practice. Um one day he showed up wearing his slippers. You know, it was just one bizarre thing after another. So my two favorites, like in the same way Earl Jones was my favorite from the Showtime book, I would say Ryder and Rodman are just joys to any journalist chronicling an era. Jeff, there's the famous story, a guy you didn't mention, Carl Malone, the story about Carl Malone hitting on Vanessa Bryant and that oh, like yeah. that was theorized that, that that blew up the the organization, Kobe certainly seemed to think that that happened. Where did you get to with the bottom of, of that story? I didn't go that far into that one, actually, um, because it kind of came out later. And I don't know. It, I know this sounds lame because it's actually a pretty titillizing, titillizing story, but uh, I didn't delve that much into it. This is almost like shifting, but Malone was a, was a pretty interesting character that year. One of my Actually, one of my favorite stories. I, again, it sounds like I'm shifting. I'm not. One of my favorite stories, though, was... Um, and it kind of speaks more to Kobe than Malone actually speaks to both of them is uh, it was the last game before Thanksgiving. They're all wrapping up and they're going to be gone for Thanksgiving, whatever with their families. And Malone sees Kobe leaving the locker room and he calls Kobe over and he whispers something into his ear, gives him like a lecture into his ear. And Kobe goes back and wishes all of his teammates a good Thanksgiving break before leaving. Like Malone had to teach him, that you should say happy Thanksgiving or enjoy your Thanksgiving <laughs> before Kobe left. So that was really telling and actually telling about Malone and telling about Kobe. Um, but I don't have a great answer about the wife. I didn't delve that much into it, to be honest with you. But, but you, the way you, you put that story in the book, if I recall correctly, was that there was a writer there who was writing a story on Carl Malone. Yeah. And as Kobe walked around to say, everybody happy Thanksgiving, I forget who the writer was, but Carl Malone looked at the writer and said, that does not go in the story. Yeah, yeah, that is true. And, uh, you know, he felt statute of limitations had passed and I could use it. But, yeah, he was, I mean, and in a way that's kind of an admirable way to be. You know, he was a, Malone saw himself as sort of this Yoda-type figure on the Lakers, and he was there to teach these guys right from wrong and winning versus losing. And he thought Kobe was clearly someone who needed guidance. You know, he, um, Malone really actually took to Kobe. That's a funny thing. Like, he really did view him as a work in progress and someone who could be, who could be something as a as a person and viewed it as, one of his jobs um, to sort of serve as a guru for him. It didn't really take, but mm-hmm. uh, that was, uh, he, I mean, a lot of guys who came along with Kobe over the years view themselves as I can really help this guy. Rick Fox certainly did. Robert Ory certainly did. Brian Shaw certainly did. And you just had limited, you can only make so much of a dent with him. He was a very stubborn, self-assured human being. Do you think that 
a lot of these guys who you spoke with about Kobe specifically for the book, once the book comes out and we'll hear their, we'll see their names in quotes, will regret what they said about Kobe? Yes, uh, probably. Because it, it comes off different when someone has died. Huh. Um, yeah, I do actually. And I'm not, I'm not, I think that's very human and I would totally understand it. And the story, the book opens with a fight Kobe Bryant had with Samaki Walker. Samaki mm-hmm. Walker, former Laker forward, did nothing wrong in that instance. He was actually pretty honorable about it all. But I think the story reads differently considering that Kobe Bryant died. You know, I don't really know what to do with that. I just don't, it's a real tricky situation. And I think you just try explaining it, but it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think a lot of those guys, um, if I were writing the book now, it would be probably a very different book based on the information I would get from players. Could you even write the book now? I could, but it'd be a lot harder. It would be yeah. a lot harder. You'd have to rely, it'd be a lot more uh, on background stories. It'd probably be a lot fewer stories. Um, you know, look at Shaq. Shaq's a perfect example. There's no way Shaq says to me, now you know what I'm dealing with. Right, Kobe's exactly. still alive. Right. I mean, Shaq was devastated by his death. Absolutely devastated. So I just, yeah, I don't know. It's, that's an interesting question. Could you write that book um, now? It definitely wouldn't be the same book. When Noah had told me that you, that you were on this book, and I, I, had, I had heard about it, but he knew the details. And by the way, he's legit when he says earlier, he was, he was reaching out to me. He's like, Adam, I can't tell you what it says. And we talk basically every day, and he's going, I can't tell you what it says. Every page has something that's making me go, I can't believe this. It was, it was no, wild, our that. conversation. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, and, and you should appreciate him keeping it all secret because I was begging him. I'm like, come on, please, give me, <laughs> give me something there. But the one to me that, that stands out is, are these legendary workout stories. And Noah and I, with the guys we've interviewed on the podcast, whether it's Earl Watson or Robert Sacre or, I mean, Adam Morrison, you name it. We have, we've had so many Kobe stories these guys have told. Everyone has their like crazy Kobe workout story that they swear if you weren't there, you wouldn't believe it kind of thing. What are some of the crazy Kobe workout stories that, that you heard and that you know are, are true? All right, I'm going to throw this in a slightly different direction just so I don't repeat other guests. Um, what I really found fascinating um, was his time in high school running with the Sixers when they were training not far from him. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's the stuff of mythology, like pure mythology. Of now, there's a lot of story. I don't know if you uh, know if you notice in the book. There's a brief footnote of my Twitter exchange with Jerry Stackhouse, and yeah, right. um, yeah. yeah. No one really I actually talk about the Stackhouse thing all the time. Not that whatever that's going to be, but no and I always talk about the story around Philly was always that that Stackhouse uh, used to get beat by Kobe one on one. That was the story we were always hearing locally around '96. Yeah, so it's it's crap. Like it's actually crap. It's just total BS. And um, it's funny because uh, I basically I reached out to because you hear all these stories, right? You hear all these stories about Kobe and he's he's with the Sixers and he's lighting them up and blah blah blah. And he was definitely a, a great player and definitely showed his skills. And the guys were like, "Yeah, this guy's going to be something." But um, I reached out to Stackhouse via Twitter. I I profiled Stackhouse for the Wall Street Journal years ago. And I just reached out to him. Hmm. I don't have a tweet in front of me, but he wrote like. I'm sure, like, you, you, this is the first thing I think of when people say we're, we're so-and-so regret having spoken about Kobe. Like, he basically said, 
I've never heard Kobe say they were true, but I've also never heard him say they were false. So F him. Um, <laughs> and like the thing that I, I think is really cool about Kobe and the, uh, and the Sixers workouts, he did not dominate Jerry Stackhouse. It's pure BS, but he took it to those guys. Um, imagine being, I remember I ran college. I ran uh, cross country at university of Delaware. And I remember my first year freshman, freshman year, I went out to run with the rest of the team and they were all seniors and these guys are like all state and all county and all these great runners. And I was terrified. Like I was absolutely terrified. I just wanted to hang with them. I was terrified. I was scared. I was just praying I'd be able to do it. This guy's running with the Philadelphia 76ers as a <laughs> high school kid and like holding his own and doing it. Like that's insane. And then the other thing, when he was in high school that I really like is he would work out I got to remember the specifics. He would, I'm going to actually reread the book before it comes out. So, I, you know, um, which is sad that you have to do, but you do have to do is he, um, he would work out and he drove from one workout to another workout place in the summer and made sure the heat in his car would be at full blast as he was driving just to build up his endurance. So like, I think he worked out at a track. It was like a 90 degree day outside in Philly, very humid, hot, gets in the car, blasts the heat all the way drives to the other workout like he did little things like that that were just absolutely insane all the time mark jackson the former big man not the analyst the former yeah. big man who went to temple he told us a story about kobe a few months ago that when kobe was 12 he had like just gotten off the plane from italy and he went down and right after mark had a sunny hill game a sunny hill league game and kobe worked out and and they played and then Kobe was putting ice on his knees right afterwards. And Mark's like, what are you, like, what are you doing? I said, what? Like, what are you icing? You're icing your knees. He's like, yeah, well, I want to be playing for a long time. He was 12 years old. He was icing his knees. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I think, yeah. um, I do think what's interesting though is a lot of this stuff, like it tells you about a lot about Kobe and his sort of struggles to fit in. And so, I mean, he's not all that different. You know, he went to the he went to a senior prom with Brandy on an arranged date, Brandy Norwood, the singer. Yeah. And it's almost like two parallel lives coming together for a moment, which is two people who were programmed from a very young age, or maybe programmed is the wrong word, but who were sort of determined to become this thing. If that meant not having a normal childhood, if that meant not going to a normal school, if that meant being put on a pedestal from the time you were little, that's what it meant. But it also, it also leads to a sort of lack of certain social developmental skills. And I think when you look at Kobe icing his knees at 12, like, on the one hand, the stories are endearing. And on the other hand, they're kind of a little concerning. Like, do you, I don't know, do you not want to go play with your friends? Like, do you not think it's a little weird? I don't know. Like, there are a lot of little moments from his childhood where you just look and you think, this guy did not have a normal upbringing where he could fit in with a bunch of guys going out for beers. I mean, there's a story in the book. When um, I think it was Orby, Ori and Rick Fox were out, it was during the preseason, and Robert Ori was drinking a beer two nights before a game. And Bryant was like, man, how can you drink before a game? And Robert Ori's like, dude, it's, it's two nights before a preseason game, and I'm 27 years old. I think I can have the beer and be okay. It's <laughs> amazing. It's amazing. I, Jeff, to, to that end, and you talk about the childhood and everything, um, his parents obviously played a huge role in his upbringing early. And then there was the public falling out with his parents. 
where did things stand with his family at the time of his his death? Um, I think good, not great. Uh, there was a reconciliation. You know, they never approved of his wife, which uh, is kind of a bummer. Um, it definitely wasn't. You know, they, he grew up a very close, in a very close knit family. Obviously, I, I think there's something to be said for when you travel together as a family and relocate somewhere together as a family, kind of forms a bond. Um, then for years, it was dead, and toward the end. They started appearing at more events, and there was a sort of reconciliation. I don't know the relationship that they have now with uh, uh, with his with his his widow, but um, it was never the same as it was when he was coming up. I mean, he moved out to L.A. and they first lived in the same house and lived down the street, so it was never the same. Yeah, I mean, to that end, you detailed in the story that not only like his parents certainly not at the wedding, but his teammates didn't even know he was dating Vanessa. His yeah, teammates didn't even know he had a, he had a, he had a girlfriend. They knew, they knew nothing. Uh, his teammates, the people who he spends more time with than anybody knew nothing about him. And that's because he didn't want them to. Yeah. Which is fair, but unusual, you know, it's very sure. unusual that you wouldn't, you know, not one teammate would be at the wedding. You know, um, it's funny when I was covering major league baseball, the Cincinnati Reds had a, had a first baseman named Sean Casey. And Sean Casey invited members of the media to his wedding. And yeah, I was the mayor. Like, oh, yeah. You're the mayor. And uh, <laughs> Kobe is like the exact opposite. His own teammates were not invited to his wedding here. It was nearby me at Data Point. Um, they didn't know he was dating her. I think a lot of them probably assumed he was a virgin. You know, he just was like, I don't mean to say that meanly. He just was, he seemed like a kid who was only focus was basketball, uh, a little bit of hip hop, sort of getting his sleep, getting in his workouts, eating properly, drinking properly, hydrating icing uh, and killing the next opponent in terms of relationships, Jeff, and Noah and I have talked about this a lot too. I remember coming up, the Philadelphia writers were almost like mocking Kobe when he came out because he was a suburbs kid. I was in district one at the time. Rip Hamilton was district one. Kobe was a star and you could feel it, but, but people thought of him as a suburbs kid because lower Marion's not a city school in, in, in the traditional sense in any way, shape or form. So he w- it was sort of like the writers never respected him entering the draft out of high school, and they wrote a lot about it. And it felt to me as a, as a local, being part of the fandom, it felt like the fans turned against him because the writers were sort of against him. What did you find to be Kobe's relationship with the, the city of Philadelphia to be like? Uh, that's an interesting question. He, he definitely wasn't embraced, and I think a big part of that was Iverson. I really do. You know, the Sixers, they did debate drafting Kobe. Uh, it wasn't a long debate, but there was some there was some consideration of taking Kobe. But I think Iverson became a Philly guy, you know, and he's, he really embodied, in a lot of ways, what Philly tries to represent, which is edgy, the underdog, hard-nosed, gritty, doesn't take any shit. Like, that was Iverson. Um, and Kobe was not that. And when Kobe started talking about how L.A. was his real home, and he kind of became more and more Hollywood. You know, he was booed when he uh, at the All-Star game uh, in Philly. Um, I just don't think Philly ever viewed him as a Philly kid because he wasn't really a Philly kid. Like you said, he was a suburban kid. He was a king of Prussia Mall kid um, and a, uh, an Italy kid. And I just think the more he was in LA. <laughs> and then, of course, of course, he beats the Sixers in the finals, you know, and mm-hmm. – shows no interest in Philly whatsoever. And I, I, don't, I don't think it was his fault. 
Like, I don't think Kobe Bryant did anything wrong because he really wasn't from Philly. He was, he was, you know, he was a lower Marion kid. Um, but I don't know. I, I don't think Philly, I still don't think Philly embraces Kobe Bryant as one of their own. I think he became, he just became, his identity became LA and the glitz and glamour mm-hmm. of the Lakers. All right, a few more. We really do appreciate all the time, Jeff. And just a few more that are kind of unrelated to one another. It's a question Great. that, it's a question that you've asked so many of your guests on the podcast, Two Writers Sling and Yang. If you haven't already subscribed to it, please do. Yeah. Rate, review, all that stuff. The how, how do you release a book during a pandemic when you can't go on the traditional book tours? So how does, one, your promotion for the book change, and how do you gauge success? Well... That's a good question. I mean, the thing is, book signings, I don't really like doing book signings anyway because they're just kind of embarrassing and usually sad. And usually you sit there and, you know, if you're a celebrity doing book signings, they're great. You're Snooky and you get 10,000 people showing up. You know, <laughs> that's when my, I just want to say, my, I think my Walter Payton book was knocked off the bestseller list by Snooky. So um, <laughs> it's maybe personal. it's throughout today, but yeah, it's personal. Me versus Snooky. No way I know. But otherwise, they're like, you do one signing, it's always fun. Your family and friends come, but then the other ones just suck and it's kind of grim. So I'm sad that I won't be doing a signing at like my hometown bookstore because this sounds corny, but it's really nice for my parents sure. and for friends who grew up with and stuff like that. It means something to them. So you don't have that. I don't, I don't know how different it's going to be. Like I really looked forward to going places when you promote. And I just mean like going into a studio going to New York and doing the yep. rounds where you go, you sit here and then you go there and then we're going to rush you there. Like, it's exciting. Mm-hmm. It's uh, Lee Monfield, great writer said, you know, he once said to me, and I've quoted him a million times that, you know, being an author, you basically, it's like being in a cave for two years and poking your head out into the sunlight for two weeks. And the sunlight's really pleasurable. It is like all your work is paid off and here you are. So I think now a lot of it is about, which it always is getting as many excerpts as possible in different places. Um, getting uh doing as many sports radio hits as possible hoping getting some news hits as possible um using social media more than ever uh and success i mean you always want to make a list uh but i guess success will be if people enjoy to be corny if people enjoy the book and i don't know i don't even know it's weird i ask everyone that question i don't even ever get an answer for it it sucks well, well, well how do you so can you gauge something adam and i talked about this past week about the about tv ratings and projecting things forward that you simply cannot do so because our lives have been turned upside down the world is upside down nothing is on schedule there's you can't project like tv ratings for the nba now forward because you just don't yeah. know what the what the world is going to look like so based on your previous book sales and then others of the type, how, how do you, right? So how do you gauge that type of book sale success? All right. So it's kind of weird because I actually don't know how many books I sell. Um, huh. Like someone will be like, how many books did so-and-so? I always either take a sort of educated guess or just admit willingly. I don't know. Um, and it's kind of weird, I guess, because this is my business, but I just more like, all right, so I've written, this is my ninth book. So I've had eight books come out. Six maybe the New York Times bestseller list. If it makes a list, I'm happy. You know, like that. And it doesn't mean I'm unhappy if it doesn't, but it's kind of a thrill. Or sure. it comes out the first day and you see your number five or 20 or whatever on Amazon. That's kind of thrilling. That's a good feeling. Um, 
it's also little things like actually today, the day I'm talking to you, the books are supposed to show up. So I've never, I haven't seen this book yet. Oh, cool. And that's, that's my favorite moment. That's actually my favorite moment is seeing the book for the first time, holding it, feeling it, looking at it. Um, and those little moments are cool. So I don't really know. I don't know how I'll gauge it. I don't know what it's going to be like promoting during a pandemic. Um, I'm a little nervous about it, but you just do what you can do. Having read Showtime mm-hmm. and knowing what happened with Magic Johnson and being the reason that a coach is let go and then had some troubles in, even though Winky wins a championship as a rookie, he has some troubles in, in late game situations and critical playoff spots. I'm always curious with the Twitter age today and everything going on and all the exposure, how do you think mid-career magic would have been perceived with all the media attention that we have now? Yeah, probably the same. You know, I feel like magic was, he had a lot of things. He had a lot of charisma. Obviously, he had a lot of charisma. He had the smile. Um, he was a pretty savvy. He had mis- he had the missteps. He definitely had missteps. Um, he doesn't come off great in this book, actually. It's kind of funny because he, he made his comeback. Um, he made a comeback with the Lakers. Uh, and he was kind of a pain in the ass. He was kind of a diva. And he really, met, you know, he had the Nick Van Exel, Eddie Jones, Lakers kind of rolling along. And Magic comes back. And all of a sudden, Cedric Ceballos hates everything going on and nobody's happy and um he didn't handle that he wasn't great uh, this is not a, an ode to magic johnson the little bit he's mentioned here um but i think magic sort of in his prime i think would have been totally fine in Sarah because he just above all else he actually is a really likable human being and a really engaging human being and i think i think he would have had he would have been kind of shack not as lovable as shack but a little less lovable but still pretty good all right well if the success of this podcast says anything about the success of the book. It is going to be a wild success. It, it is going to be life changing for you oh, and your family, Jeff. Life-changing. Brace yourself. Brace yourself, yeah. Jeff. Life changing. So make sure. So the best way is Amazon. Is that is that where folks should get the book? Eh, is that, is that the best book. thing from you? No, it doesn't matter. You know, wherever someone can get a book, it's fine with me. Okay, For the real. book is Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the Crazy Years of the Lakers Dynasty. Also the podcast, Two Writers, Sling and Yang. He is the New York Times bestselling author, Jeff Perlman. Jeff, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Oh yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for doing it. So here's that tweet, that DM from Stackhouse to Jeff Perlman. Yeah. I found, I found it in the book. What's up, brother? Hope all is well. Probably not the one to talk much about Kobe to expand on all the myth of him beating me as a high schooler, but to his credit, I've never heard him say it, but he hasn't denied, but he hasn't denied it either. So basically fuck him. So I do think there are going to be players who regret what they've said. And, but I do think that Jeff is such a good person to write this book because he's been so open and honest with, the missteps that he made in his career early, nothing, no, no, and I'm not talking to the extent of Eagle Colorado. I'm talking about how he handled himself in a newsroom as cocky and arrogant and an asshole and a prick and a, and a prick to some people. And he's, and he's admitted all of this stuff. He mm-hmm. talks about it a lot on his podcast. It's, it's seemingly cathartic. So I think he's in a, in, in a unique position to write this type of book, given 
or the tragic circumstances of Kobe now? It, I'm telling you, Noah, I said it during our interview and I'll say it again. The biggest thing for him is going to be getting people to understand that he started writing it and finished it prior to Kobe's death. Yeah. I think if, if people come in with the idea and I, and when you and I were first talking about him doing this book, like my, that was my first question. Wait, has he been doing this since, um, since the death? Because if it comes off that way, almost like as an exploitation piece, um, which is, is what it would feel like if he tried to do this book in a way after Kobe's death, it, that's what it would feel like. It was exploitation. But now it's like a snapshot in history. And you know what? In a, it'll be really cool in the sense that people spoke their minds about Kobe. And by the way, there is something to really be said for the idea that a lot of the stories that are going to be uncomfortable to read, just like they were for you, and they will be when I get my hands on a copy because I'm going to have to go buy one. Jeff didn't even offer to send me one. Uh, I don't know if you're even allowed to send me your digital copy, how this whole thing works. But, but once I do read it, I know it's uncomfortable. But at the same time, there's also this like redemption story with Kobe that all these people talk about. Like he didn't even know to say happy Thanksgiving to his teammates. And there was a guy that in Kobe Bryant as a 16-year-old, 17-year-old, when I was first hearing about him, he's 15, who his teammates really liked and enjoyed being around and stuff. And so it's almost like this career that took some twists and turns and all this and ends up at the end of his life as this wonderful father, wonderful husband, and had the respect of so many people and impacted so many lives. So there, it was a, it's a redemptive story. So to hear about these were the hard times or this is when he couldn't connect with teammates because he's 17 and dealing with, with people who had families and were adults and a man's league, like it, it'll actually be kind of cool to revisit that and then remember who he became later in life dude the stories <laughs> and you, you brought it up to jeff that as i was reading it that i would call you every day and like you got i can't wait for you to read this <laughs> this I, I was just rereading the the beginning it's the samaki walker story which you can find some online samaki walkers told a story but not in the detail that that jeff has it here and the the voicemail that kobe ends up leaving him in tears and Shaq encouraging Samaki Walker to quote fuck him up on the bus and the bus getting stopped and then Kobe not getting off the bus to fight Phil stopping the bus in Cleveland <laughs> like, like even things about like Cedric Sabalos and the J.R. Ryder stuff and the Dennis Rodman and how Del Harris would never stop talking actually I did want to ask Jeff maybe I'll text Jeff and ask him how how long did he talk to Del Harris for? Because he said, like in the book, it's like Del Harris just never stopped talking. Worse oh, it's so us. good. Oh, it's so Worse good. So make us. sure you pick up Three Ring Circus. And if you haven't, if you're in hoops and you haven't read the other books, pick up Showtime as well. Oh, it's amazing. It's amazing. You can follow us on Instagram at rejecting underscore the underscore screen. Adam's on Twitter at Naismith Lives, Matt Noah Kozlov, C-O-S-L-O-V. On the Locked On Podcast Network, we've got Locked On NBA five days a week. We've got Hollinger and Duncan. We've got Locked On Fantasy Hoops with Josh Lloyd, plus your team every day, all 30 teams every single day. That's what it's all about on the Locked On Podcast Network. Adam, thanks, pal. You are the best.